Let's turn for a moment to a very well-known passage in 2 Timothy, second letter to Timothy, chapter 3 and verse 10. 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 10. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. But out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, complete, truly furnished unto all good works. Well, our subject now is upholding the old paths. Well, in the second part of the 19th century, there came in great attacks, as you know, on the word of God. Profound cynicism came into public thinking. Biblical criticism was born. Of course, there was also Darwinism and the theory of evolution and umpteen other things. But within the church, perhaps, the most significant was biblical criticism. The enemy's manner of proceeding against the church was mainly to attack fundamental doctrines. First of all, the scripture, and then the doctrines arising out of scripture. It was a head-on attack. We read that uh, in the 1870s, the majority of Baptists in this country were still Calvinistic. It isn't so largely appreciated today that even in the general Baptist body, the majority of churches and preachers were Calvinistic at that time, let alone the, uh, uh, those who arose directly from particular Baptist tradition. But uh, that was the state of affairs in the 1870s. But within 40 years, that had gone. Liberalism had come in, and the pace at which it came in was astonishing. So by the time you get to World War I, this country is filled with nominal believers. People generally still held on to the ethic of Christianity, but they rejected the religion. The 
spiritual aspect, the faith and uh, reconciliation with God, all that were gone. And we had many, many nominal Christians, formal worshippers. World War I smashed that to pieces. So many of the men returning from World War I gave up their nominal belief in Christian doctrine altogether. And there was a great slide. And between the two world wars, liberalism proceeded so rapidly again, leaving just a tattered remnant in, the, in, in Britain. And uh, post-war, well, we're left with only a small fraction of people who are genuine believers. But now the enemy has switched his attack. Now it isn't so much um, a direct attack on fundamental doctrines. It's changed in character a great deal. In the last 40 years, particularly so, the attack now is against the conduct of Christians, the application of the word of God in the Christian life and in the life of the church. The devil's approach seems to be to approve fundamental doctrine by and large. Head-on opposition to that has been withdrawn by him and it's really an attack on the churches and their conduct and how they behave and how they apply the word and how they go about things. That's where we've seen the attack in the last 40 years. And we haven't caught up with it. The devil and his hosts and his lieutenants are still pursuing that policy. And as evangelicals, well, even among the sounder evangelicals, we tend to concentrate on statements of doctrine. And there are no statements of conduct, of application of the doctrine. We tend to con concentrate on the theory, not the practice. We mustn't divide on practice. That's the message today. We must unite on the things we have in common, the fundamentals of the faith. We must not divide on so-called secondary things. What are they? The application of the faith, the conduct of the Christian, the manner of operation of the church. So that is not considered. And to this day, good people are producing good statements of faith and remaining silent, by and large, on conduct. And that is where the enemy is attacking. And that brings us really to the subject which Pastor Beasley has been uh, pursuing, and that is uh, uh, Professor Wayne Grudem and his systematic theology, fantastically influential. He quoted the figure of 750,000 copies of the first edition. That's the figure. But they're already said to be something of a quarter of a million through the second edition. That's a million copies. Whoever would have thought it of a systematic theology? A Harry Potter book may be, but a systematic theology? That is astonishing.
That's tremendously influential. But what I'd like to put before you is this, that while it is by and large sound on matters of theory, it is haywire on matters of practice. And it's just what the enemy would have. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that Professor Wayne Grudem himself is not a believer. I'm not suggesting that he's not a deeply earnest believer. I don't know him. I have no reason to to doubt that. He is possibly a very sacrificial believer, for all I know. And on many things, he is entirely sound. So I don't wish to detract from him wrongly. But on the matter of ethics, Christian conduct, church conduct, the application of the faith, he concedes everything to new evangelicals and new Calvinists. He is very weak in these areas. He makes many mistakes and serious mistakes. But I don't suggest he is one of the men referred to in Jude, the letter of Jude and the early verses of that letter, or even the worst offenders of dissemination of falsehood here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But if I can call your attention just for a moment to verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, theory, revelation of the teachings of God. And then look at what follows. Doctrine is only a quarter of it, less. For reproof, that's admonition, that's application. For correction, that's application. That's Christian conduct, church conduct. For instruction in righteousness, that's application. Three parts application, one part doctrine. I'm not suggesting the mathematics of that as an emphasis for ministry, but just pointing it out here. Application is everything. Application is so vital. Exhortation, which ranges all the way from encouragement to reproof. These things are essential and vital. And that is the weakness in the modern systematic theology as represented by Professor Wayne Gruden. And that's what we have to be so careful on and warned about. There are serious mistakes. There were some mistakes in the theory too. Professor Gruden is an upholder of the old earth view. Various other things too which are serious. There's the eternal subordination of the sun, which is one of the strongest contenders for. I think that is very serious. It may not be in the minds of theologians. Evangelical theologians may understand what they're speaking of, but in the minds of ordinary believers, it's catastrophic. You cannot accept the eternal subordination of the Son to the Father without an erosion of the deity of Christ and the eternity of Christ and the full and total Godhead of the Son of the living God. 
You cannot do it. It undermines, it detracts, it's very serious. And then uh, there are other things too we could mention. So when I say sound, there are still some problems there. But by and large, it is sound on matters of fundamental theology. It's in the application. That is the difficulty. Professor Gooden in application does not stand in a wholly conservative position. Now, Systematic Theology was published, first of all, in 1994. The revised edition came out in 2020. It's highly recommended by many Reformed people. Interestingly, it's highly recommended, too, by many leading Charismatics, and certainly by the entire New Calvinistic and New Evangelical camp. They're delighted with it. So what's the matter with it? For it to secure such wide commendation. Even the leather-jacketed, rhythm-based, worldly idiom-based, modern songwriters love it. You might say it's playing their tune. It's supporting what they do. It doesn't disagree with any of it. So even the most worldly manifestations of evangelicalism are very pleased with Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. And yet, it's the chief text in the se most seminaries that are evangelical these days. It's what so many young men are trained in and learn. Pastor Beasley has been concentrating on prophecy. That is pivotal. I don't know whether this illustration is a bit strong, but when I think of Wayne Grudem's work on prophecy, I think, take this in proportion, I think of the Abortion Act of 67. And the parallel I draw is this. That Abortion Act set free the mind of most people to think in pretty radical terms. If you can kill babies, what can't you do? If you're free to think like that, you can ditch any moral principle if you turn your mind to it. And I think this thesis on fallible prophecy does that for people who are wavering on the whole charismatic agenda. Am I a cessationist? Am I a continuationist? This is almost pivotal. If you can establish in people's minds fallible prophecy, well, it opens the door to a whole new area of thought. It is a very pivotal issue. So I'm very encouraged that he's dealing with it so well. Let me divide then Wayne Grudem's systematic theology uh, in such a way that you view it in two fields. You consider it uh, in terms of its doctrinal content, the theory, and you consider it in terms of its application of these things. Doctrine and ethics. Revealed truth 
and application to life. And we'll look at it in the second sense, where there are just so many departures, serious departures, from traditional conservative interpretation of the Bible. And this is why it's so warmly received. Just want to say something else about it in a general manner before we get into details, and it's this. You know, people say it's accessible, that Professor Grudem has a tremendous talent for expressing things simply and clearly. Well, that's probably true. I must say, when I first read it, years ago in the 90s, I thought, this, the secret of this, perhaps you'll find this a rather dismal way of looking at it, but the secret of this is what we would have called in the old parlance third form stuff, fourth form stuff. That's what it is. This is communication to years nine and ten. That's what makes it so accessible and straightforward. What's this doing in the seminaries? It's not the most sophisticated expression of doctrine or the fullest, and it isn't. There are umpteen doctrines such as the doctrine of regeneration. This is just an aside. And it's dealt with without any reference to history. You're not told what Calvin thought, or Luther thought, or any of the reformers thought. You're not told what the Puritans thought, or what the 17th century confessions thought. You're not told anything about that. You're introduced immediately to Professor Goodham's view, which is based very much closely on John Murray's view. But you're not told the history. You're not warned that actually this view of regeneration is out of line by comparison with all former reformed thought and interpretation. You're not told that. You would think in a scholarly work there would be reference to the history and the development of the doctrine, that the grand old writers would be honoured by some sort of refutation if he wants to vary or differ from them. But no such thing. What he holds is in the interests of simplicity put out without any reference to those things. And you wonder where all the approval comes from for this kind of work. That's not, that's not solid work. That's not good work. We want to know where this doctrine stands in relation to the past worthies, where it stands in the line of conservative history, and you don't learn it. So it may be good for lay people up to a point and youngsters, but here is another feature of Professor Grudem's systematic theology. He will consider the main body of the subject. Then, and your immediate reaction is, this is very helpful. Then, he will propose some objections. Objection number one to this doctrine. 
In due course, objection number two. Objection number three. What are these objections? Well, they're not the real objections. They're not the solid problems that we want to get our teeth into. They're simple things. And that's what makes me say it's third or fourth form level. The average seminarian, if you raise this, what about this? He ought to be able to answer that himself without the help of the systematic theology. That's an obvious problem easily resolved. But it takes so much space. You've read 50, 60 pages on this topic, then it's closed. And when you think twice, but you haven't dealt with such and 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 such. And that's a fairly consistent feature of it as a systematic theology. It isn't even thorough. It's so busy answering the easy ones that it doesn't get to the difficult ones, to the things that really cause us to think and trouble our minds. Well, let me talk for a moment or two quickly about worship. Professor Grudem's views of worship. He starts with the definition of worship, and it's one of the worst definitions you've ever seen. The definition of worship is, it's to that which brings glory to God. Well, that's a very broad general statement. Professor Gruden, can't you do better than that? This is a huge subject and a wonderful subject, something that we need to be prepared with and study the nature of worship, its objective, its object, its manner, its mode. There's so much to it. And it's defined in the most broad and general terms. And that allows the writer to permit almost anything in worship, which he virtually does. He has this very brief definition, and then he passes to the fruits of worship or the results of worship. He understates Old Testament worship, and this is a feature of Professor Grudem's work. I suppose it arises from his being a dispensationalist but he constantly underestimates the Old Testament. Now we know that there is progression in Revelation, and we know the New Testament is a far, far brighter light and brings to us all the glories of grace and the gospel in vivid colors. But that doesn't mean to say we underestimate the Old Testament and the spiritual development that was available to godly people in the Old Testament. And we benefit constantly from the riches and the depths of the Psalms of David. And you marvel and wonder at his spiritual experience and his depth and breadth of expression. But the suggestion is, and it comes up in different contexts by Professor Grudem, that they were way back in the Old Testament. They didn't have what he's pleased to call new covenant privileges and light. But on worship, he has almost nothing to learn from the Old Testament because it's a New Testament thing. At least that is the tendency in this section. He has large sections of advice 
and some of it cordial, homely, good advice, but he has no deep doctrinal or systematic treatment of the subject at all. So he can accept performance-based worship, performances even applaud. There'll be a caution here and there about successes, but he accepts in principle almost anything that goes. And you read a very long section, and at the end of it, you're left with questions. What does this teach me about the nature of worship, congregational worship, how it should be led, what its components or ingredients are? Nothing for all the many pages. What about instruments? and bands, and orchestras, and songs without words. Are these valid expressions of worship or not? What is the scriptural position? Total silence on these great principles. What about percussion, and rhythms, and applause? Nothing. What about the entertainment idiom? Is that legitimate? Or is worship something that should be considered with the categories of sacred and profane in mind? And there should be a distinct difference, a specialness about worship? Nothing, not a word. What about reverence? A definition of reverence and its place? Nothing. What about hymns and psalms, justification, basis, type, nothing, except that throughout the systematic theology, every section closes with a traditional hymn and a modern worship hymn. And how feeble most of them are. And it's accepted. What I'm saying to you is that Professor Grudem, however sincere, I believe to be totally mistaken in the application of the faith. And he's, whether he intends to or not is another matter, but he's effectively justifying, supporting, and feeding the whole new evangelical, new Calvinistic trend in downwards in all these things. That's the problem. And then dealing with worship, I could come on to other things. Does he discuss the structure of worship. Biblical examples, as he quotes so many modern worship songs, which are so heavily subjective, does he talk about objective worship, subjective worship, the traditional distinctions that you would expect to find in the old systematic works? Not a word. No distinction at all. What about the parts or the elements of worship? Private prayer and devotion is fueled and taught and helped by public worship. What is in the public worship? Are there distinctions? Adoration of God, thanksgiving to God. All the elements of prayer and of worship, affirmation of doctrine, repentance before God, Dedication of the life to God. Things that elevate 
God's authority and holiness, intercession for others before the throne of grace, petitions for all our needs, nothing. What a wonderful, profound topic worship is. Nothing reflected in the Grudem systematic theology, but it's a long section, yet it has nothing to say. So I have to really put this as plainly as I can. I think it is, by and large, quite a dangerous work because it aids and abets the decline. I'm not suggesting for a moment that was the author's intention, but his position tends to that end. And then we could say a few things about other topics too, but worship is so important. It's the first duty of the Christian, the first duty of the Church of Christ, It's a full and wonderful topic. It's not done justice. And I haven't even talked much about contemporary Christian worship, but it's all broadly approved by Professor Grudem. Then the gifts of the Spirit. Let me read to you Professor Grudem's definition of a gift of the Spirit, and you'll hear what's wrong straight away. A spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. That is not a correct definition of a gift of the Spirit. That is totally novel. That isn't anywhere in the Reformed tradition. That's a very loose and vague description. In fact, it's a description which leads to gifts being justified by personal claim. I have a gift. Who says so? Well, I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit to perhaps play a percussion instrument to the glory of God. This is what is going on everywhere. A gift is just easily claimed. That definition will permit it. There's nothing there to clearly set parameters and standards or anything. It's hopelessly imprecise and there isn't an element of scripture in the definition. So I have to speak strongly about it. Now, for instance, the old works will invariably distinguish between two different families of gift of the Spirit. There are the revelatory and sign gifts on the one hand, and then there are the gifts for the edification of the whole church, the building up in knowledge of the whole church. Two different families of gifts. And generally, the older works will hold one family, that is the revelatory and sign gifts, to have passed away with the apostles. And there's a little debate on what falls into which category, but nevertheless, those are the categories. The revelatory and sign gifts. The revelatory gifts are finished because the scripture is complete. And the sign gifts that were invariably to authenticate the bearers of revelation are finished also. 
And the gift of tongues is expressly defined in Isaiah and by the Apostle Paul as being a sign to the Jews. And that is past. The other gifts named in the scripture which tend to the edification of the church, obviously like ongoing teaching gifts, proclaiming gifts, are in another category. But these are completely confused and put in one. In fact, Professor Grudem says there are far more gifts than Paul lists in his epistles. He lists a number, but there are far more. And there is this quote that I've got for you. He says, Paul lists randomly as they come to mind various gifts. Now, that phrase seems to reflect whatever Professor Grudem claims, it seems to reflect a rather low view of Scripture. So the gifts are listed by Paul randomly as they come to mind. There are omissions. His memory could fail him. He's not attempting to cover all the ground. Who's going to tell us what the other gifts are? Professor Grudem, presumably. By inspiration? No, he doesn't want to claim that. But by what authority then? What are the gifts? Much safer to say we will stick with the ones in the scripture. And if somebody has another gift, a gift to arrange flowers, we'll say, dare we? It's a gift. But it's a natural gift. We're not going to say it's a spiritual gift. The flower arranger may pray and be aided by the Holy Spirit, but we're not going to elevate it to a spiritual gift on a par with prophecy and apostolic utterance. Of course not. Professor Grudem does. He extends the list way beyond what is in the scripture, and it's all spiritual gifts, because we say so. That's what it comes down to. I think that's dreadfully weak. Again, the weakness is always in application, application, all the time. Very poor definition of miracles, key issues not addressed, absolute open door to uh, continuationism, a long, long section on the gifts of the Spirit, which is really nicely expressed, gently expressed, the professor's personal views. Not scripture, not the teaching of the Apostle Paul. So there are a whole variety of things which cause us difficulty. Worship, the gifts, Regeneration and evangelism. I'll refer to that a bit more on Monday. The Lord's Day. You remove the Sabbath commandment completely. It's part of the law. Doesn't matter that it's laid down before the giving of the law by Moses. That little snag is neglected. Reminds me of somebody sent me a clip of uh, uh, Dr. John MacArthur speaking about the Lord's Day 
And he opens up by saying that from the Garden of Eden to the giving of the law of Moses, there is no mention of the Sabbath. But he's forgotten something. It happens to be a creation ordinance. That's a mighty authority. And that casts its light over all the Old Testament. And indeed, we may ask, where does our seven-day week come from if it's not the Sabbath creation ordinance from the very beginning? But Professor Grudem doesn't touch on that. He doesn't touch on the history. And you think of the American culture these days. Well, I don't visit now. I have to give up traveling some years ago, but I used to go a good deal. It always amazed me, except in the very best circles, the looseness of attitude towards the Lord's Day. Certainly we don't have the Jewish Sabbath, but we have the Sabbath principle in the Lord's Day. It's... We could speak at length about this. It's so vital. It's so important. It shapes churches. It shapes Christian priorities. It teaches them to us. It helps us immensely. It's the command and the will of God. But uh, it's just dismissed. The Lord's day. And in the American culture now, what will you do? The vast majority of professing evangelicals go to church for uh, an hour or two in the morning, then go to the restaurant and the day's their own. After that, it's not the Lord's day, it's the Lord's hour, almost. And it's, uh, there was a person came to see me, a very eminent preacher, uh, some years ago, and he said to me, I rather proudly, but perhaps I wrongly imputed that to him. He said, I'm not a Sabbatarian. I thought to myself, well, as the years go on, we'll hear all sorts of concessions from you. And that brother, we have had all kinds of concessions from him. Dispose of the Lord's Day, the spirit of the Lord's Day, the honoring of the Lord's Day, and all kinds of other things soon begin to come apart and fail. But it's just an example of where Professor Grudem is doing it all the time. Church order. There is no pattern church in Professor Grudem's systematic theology. There's various different orders of government discussed in a genial way, but there's no conclusion and there's no strong Baptist conservative tradition, and there's no pattern church of the word of God. Mode of sanctification is weak. The old uh, uh, illustrations of the word of God and the Puritans, the old man and the new man, the two natures in the Christian, no, we don't want that. That's gone. Things that help us to grasp and understand temptation and residual sin. That's all gone. And then the hermeneutics. His hermeneutics is dominated by his dispensationalism. That's very serious to me. 
Many, many dispensationalists, if not most of them, are people of the word. They love the word and believe in it and seek to expound it, but their dispensationalism has wrecked their view of large portions of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, well, we all agree, that's Calvary. Who could deny it? Isaiah 54 immediately follows Isaiah 53. The calling of the Gentiles and the opening up of the Jewish church to the Jewish Gentile International Church of Christ. Oh no, you can't preach like that. The next, Isaiah 54, the gospel propounded and defined. Isaiah 55, the New Testament church. No, 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 no. That's all millennial future. Has nothing to say to us. It doesn't teach us that all things are for our learning. Has gone. So dispensationalism does deeply wound your hermeneutical approach. And that's true of this uh, systematic theology. So many things that we could mention and some will discuss on Monday. But I wanted to just give the broad distinctions and problems which I see in this work. You can amen so many of the doctrinal portions, but not all, but almost none of the practical portions. And I'm sorry to be negative, because it's important. These things are the lifeblood of healthy and rejoicing churches and Christian people. We need the old paths. We need the old views, the old standards, the old distinctions. We need them desperately in our churches. You take the whole matter of Christian assurance. Where does it come from? So much of it comes from worship. If worship isn't defined, safeguarded, kept pure, kept sacred, kept noble with a great God, where's the assurance of Christian people to become from? People come to church to be reconciled with God. Christian people stained from a week in the world to be uplifted and helped and challenged and encouraged and to worship, most of all, from their hearts in a way that is reverent and acceptable and gives them a great view of Almighty God. It's gone with new evangelicalism, contemporary Christian worship, new Calvinism. It's being eroded away to nothing. All these things are precious gifts to Christian people and must be preserved and they're the things that God desires and that God has appointed and that he wants. So if you'll bear with me, and I'll go into more detail on Monday, I lay general observations before you this afternoon.